the thing about a preparedness mindset is that you are thinking into the future. And so if one of those scenarios happens, you've already mentally prepared in some sort of way for it. So you don't, you're not dealing with the shock. That's a place as an artist that I feel has a lot of potential, right, for engagement and for communication and bringing audiences along. When you're talking about realities, accepting that reality, right, I think will, you know, has the potential to push us to do other things. Um, it's it's great to hear about um, Canada Council, you know, changing different ways around enabling the arts and building capacity in the arts in terms of the context of the climate emergency. It is, it'll be interesting to see how um, artists step up. Another episode of the Conscient Podcast. I'm with Jen Ray, who's actually a Canadian, but she's in Australia this morning. Uh, good morning, Jen. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me, Claude. Yeah, well, it's my pleasure. We've been, you know, I've been reading about your work recently, and uh, and I, I've known about you, but we haven't met. So uh, it's a pleasure to to get to know you, especially now that there's so much more activity around art and climate change, and you've been working for many, many years, and in a way prescient being prescient of the moment that's coming if <laughs> such a thing exists. But maybe you could just start by introducing yourself. We'll have a bio, a link to your bio, but just a, a quick overview of, of where, who you are, what, what, where you come from and what you do. Sure. Um, I'm a practice-led researcher. Um, I've been working at the intersection of, you know, art and climate change, gosh, I mean, seriously since about 2005 2006 but I did my first work um, in 2003 um, and over, over the course of, of time I've really moved from sort of creating works that were about raising awareness to moving towards disaster preparedness and that's where the body of my work has been um, since 2006. So and then at the same token I, I do a lot of community social cohesion projects um, in my community of Faulkner, which is north of Melbourne. Um, we my partner and I run um, have started some initiatives around food systems, food growing and food distribution in our largely multicultural back um, community. And your training is in the arts, of course. I think you you're <laughs> Both a curator, a writer, uh, many, many wear, wear many hats. Mm. Um, what was your PhD in? My PhD was in yeah, it was art in the Anthropocene: processes of responsiveness and communication in an era of environmental uncertainty. And you know, and that was like work from 2010 to 2015. And you know, and you know, like we weren't talking about the Anthropocene. Um, I remember back then having quite a bit of pushback from educators and academics on the validity of this research. Um, you know, I had a curator say to me, this is an art, this is political, you know. Um, and, and now, you know, there, it, it has become quite valid in, um, in the art circles, especially in Australia, and I'm understanding in Canada as well. Well, we'll start with the, the question I'm asking all of my guests about um, the idea of accepting reality, which is has a relationship to denial, but also how you interpret reality, and the, the idea of ecological grief. And they're different things, but for me, I'm exploring them in parallel because I've needed to, to do both, to, to really come to terms with what I think is real, uh, what is scientifically true, but also true in my body, and, and to work through ecological grief. So where are, you, where are some of the thoughts on that? 
cultural theorist Thomas Berry. Our challenge is to create a new language, even a new sense of what it is to be human. It is to transcend not only national limitations, but even our species' isolation, to enter into the larger community of living species. This brings about a completely new sense of reality and value. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've been in that, you know, fluctuating in all of those different stages for a long time. And I always prepare myself for the next IPCC report um, to be able to deal with all of the, you know, complex emotions that come out when you get that hit with such difficult news to digest. Um, but I, I've, I've been in that acceptance space um, since 2006, well, 2005. I remember it was the death of my father and the birth of my daughter that it was a big reality check um, and understanding that he had a lot of skills and knowledges that I didn't retain and they were the sort of skills and knowledges that my daughter was going to need in the climate emergency and um, I remember being in a lab a creative lab at Arts House and it was with you know climate scientists and sociologists and community workers and for us to go and work on this big body of work called the Refuge Project, we consciously crossed a threshold where we said, you know, climate change impacts are going to hit us and um, we're no longer going to be in that space around raising awareness or doing work about, you know, particular issues. Um, we were going to cross a threshold together to really think about um, climate-related disasters and preparing for them. So moving into a preparedness mindset. And that became a, um, a really liberating experience um, to step in there because all of a sudden we weren't caught in, in, I guess, those deep emotional states and it was focusing on what we could do. Um, and so um, I, I feel like I'm far more active and less crippled by emotions than I was, you know, back in 2014-15. Well, I had a, an experience. You, you, uh, you're part of a film called Re Refugium. You could maybe tell us a bit about that because I, I really recommend that people see that. And what it did for me, because it's a type of speculative fiction, you can explain it, but what it did for me is free my mind, uh, even though the future is uh, problematic <laughs> because we know what's coming, uh, in terms of climate disruption, it was also good to uh, anticipate a future and many futures. And, and how that relates to action is sometimes a direct or indirect connection, but it certainly, uh, I got over the fear of, of the content of your work, of your film, the things you're writing, and it kind of it freed me to, to be more uh, able to embrace uh, the, the, the fact that these things are coming and that we do have to prepare the way for our children and that life life is still here, it's still vital, it's still alive, you know. Um, but maybe you could tell a bit about, about that piece and then also the, the, what, what speculative fiction or speculative type artworks can do for audiences. Uh, how, how does that, where, where does that bring the audience member? Artist Diego Galafasi. Art is a space where we can ask very difficult questions and explore things in a more open-ended way. 
and not be committed to solutions. Oh, well, thanks for that feedback. You know, that film, we've just released it what, um, about a week and a half ago. Um, so Refugium, that's, um, it's a collaboration with author, uh, Nungar um, author, Claire G. Coleman. Um, she's responsible for a book in Australia called um, Terra Nullius. Um, she works a lot in, in thinking around um, colonial impact on First Nations people. Um, and we we did a we did a performance piece um, sort of on the back of the Australian bushfires and and pre pandemic and said oh my goodness we operate in the same zeitgeist we should we should collaborate and then the pandemic hit and we couldn't we couldn't collaborate like we couldn't meet in person so over the course of 2020 we we met once a week and decided we were going to do a performance piece and Claire was you know, living quite remotely from Melbourne. And I was living in a community that was impacted by COVID. I mean, literally on the other side of our fence where we had 44 deaths. And, you know, our daughter was in the backyard and we had drones flying over. We had police ambulances and so forth. And through this writing, Claire and I realized that Claire could go into the dark spaces much faster than I could. And I was constantly pulling back saying, I, you know, I, I have to ensure that I don't traumatize my four-year-old. And so that started a dialogue around thinking about intergenerational justice and thinking about, um, you know, how do we, how do we prevent trauma? Like, how do we, how, how do we have child-centered trauma prevention? And I mean, there wasn't a lot of literature on this. Um, we started doing storylines. We, we did complicated storylines and, uh, and timelines thinking about different trajectories. Okay, what if we go down this one towards collapse? What if we go down to this one where there's a technological solution? You know, and we, we started mapping different solutions, um, different ways um, in terms of us, to th different ways in which we could think about the future. But the two main points were child-centered trauma prevention and intergenerational justice. And that's where we came up with essentially a zoom call from the future to people because <laughs> I mean our entire relationship pretty much was was in zoom and this storyboard um became a dialogue between what was what became my future ancestor and what it would look like for myself to return to Canada and what would push me to leave Australia you know like Australia is um, I think in the top three of um biodiversity loss you know, we we had unbelievable bushfires, and I mean, um, yes, the pandemic has. We're not experiencing it in the way in which the rest of the world are now. But you know, if we have another, you know, another year like we had with the bushfires, I mean, Australia, it's it's a dire situation. Thinking about that and very conservative thinking, um, we've got great disparity between the rich and the poor. We've got massive ecological degradation. The reality is that Australia may become unlivable within my daughter's lifetime. And maybe we are in that privileged place where we could leave. You know, so, um, yeah, so I, I think in terms of speculative fiction, I, you know, I call myself a pragmatic futurist. Um, I think a lot about... Um, preparing myself for what might come and what we've learned in the refuge project and the refuge project is um, a project by arts house in melbourne 
and it's where art meets the climate emergency and it's a transdisciplinary collaborative project where we have um, artists, community groups, local governments, emergency service professionals, all collaborating together, imagining different sorts of disaster scenarios. We've, we've done a flood, a heat wave, a pandemic in 2018, ironically. Um, and we've been looking at climate-related displacement for the last couple of years. The thing about a preparedness mindset is that you are thinking into the future. And so um, if one of those scenarios happens, you've already mentally prepared in some sort of way for it. So you don't, you're not dealing with the shock. Right. And so that's a place as an artist that I feel has a lot of potential, right, for engagement and for communication and bringing, bringing, bringing audiences along. And so how does that work aesthetically? Uh, to, what, what does the audience member experience uh, when they're into, in a pragmatic futurist artwork? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think from the experience of working in refuge, um, and predominantly all of my work now, um, I don't really have dress rehearsals. I'm not about mm -hmm. creating a perfect work for the audience. I'm interested in bringing the audience along in an experimental process. And um, even, even our community-based work is like that as well. So it allows the audience to come in and help shape the work at the same time. And it's in that vein of perpetual responsiveness. And... Mm -hmm. I feel like in COVID, uh, in the COVID response, at least in our community and with a lot of people that I've spoken to, people rolled up their sleeves, right? And they didn't have all of the perfect answers, you know, and but they started to adapt and experiment together. And that's perpetual responsiveness, hmm. you know? Um, yeah. In a participative community engaged model, yeah. I mean, those words are very broad, but I, I, I hear you because if you're, if you're not a passive audience member, you're actually uh, able to voice or at least participate in an artwork, then you're in a way creating your own future, uh, thinking about it, uh, going through the emotions of, and obviously you <laughs> you don't want to necessarily have those things to happen. And it is a call mm -hmm. to action, but it's not necessarily an immediate action. It's like a, a reflective action. It's like, who am I? Where am I going? What kind of world do I want my children to inherit? Uh, I find it's very complex, and that's why the complexity of the arts are so interesting, I think, in climate, around climate issues, because it kind of can work its way in and around uh, some of the most obvious facts, you know, fact, fact, fact. Yeah, well, how do you feel about it? It inspires you also. So, so I, Jen, I'm, I'm interested in, in all of your work, because I, I was listening to a podcast you did this afternoon. Uh, I was in, driving the car. It's called... Uh, uh, raising the bar, and it was from 2009. And you're, you, I, I recommend people listen to that as well because we won't get through all the things, the things you said. <laughs> but one of the things you said is you quoted um, Susie Gablick, who I've been reading for years. I've never met her, but who was talking about uh, uh, the, the 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 she used the word ego, egocentric nature of, of artists, not that only artists are egocentric, I think everybody is in, in society, but that she was implying that that was a, a barrier and will, will the arts step up? And I, I mentioned it because it, it triggered something in me I hadn't, I hadn't thought about because I, I tend to think, you know, art is good. Art will step up. 
But art has a lot of the same barriers that other parts of society has, right? We're materialistic. We're, we live in a consumer society. We, you know, artists are often more sense, socially sensible or, you know, and they certainly work with less material. But I, I don't know why, uh, if you have thoughts about that particular quote, but also the, the, some of the barriers that the arts community uh, and some of the opportunities also for the arts community coming into uh, the, the, a more intense climate crisis. How do you see the role of the arts, and and, and how do you see some of the uh, some of the ways that artists can adapt to to these new circumstances? Artist Lance Garavi. While individual works of art, however genius, may have value, they won't do the trick. What we need is for all art to be about climate change. C'est un peu comme quand on prend une grenouille qui est un animal à sang-froid et qu'on la met dans un bocal d'eau et qu'on fait chauffer l'eau peu à peu. La grenouille va s'habituer à la Composer Robert Normando. It's a bit like taking a frog, which is a cold-blooded animal, and putting it into a jar of water and heating the water little by little. The frog will get used to the temperature rising and rising, and it will not notice that the temperature has risen, and one day the temperature will be too hot for it, and it will die. Therefore, our civilization, in terms of sound, looks a bit like that. That is to say, we get used to it, we get used to it, we get used to it, and at some point, we're going to have punctured eardrums. Yeah, um, I, I think that one of those things around the egocentric, that egocentric role there that, that lots of artists find themselves in, um, a way to think about this is that you can make really brilliant work about, about, you know, in relation to the climate emergency, but oftentimes you're um, presenting this work to discrete audiences in sort of privileged settings and you're preaching to the converted, right? Um, the arts, you know, artists have a lot of different skills. We're very used to co collaborating with new collaborators or people outside of our bubble. And, um, you know, I, I think if we, uh, you know, we as artists, as well as, as people outside of the arts, if we actually did a skills audit, look at all the different skills and knowledges that we have, and if we can find ways to connect them with others, you know, these are survival skills, essentially, you know, as artists um, in the climate emergency, we're going to see, you know, the ways in which we, t uh, we're already seeing it in COVID, but, you know, the way in which we tour, the way in which we present, the residencies, um, all the ways in which we make art and disseminate it, it's going to change in the climate emergency, right? That's, that makes us quite vulnerable. Um, but if we can find ways to look at how our skills and knowledges intersect within other disciplines and finding really dynamic ways in which we can collaborate and um, amplify those skills, um, we, can, we can continue to, to be dynamic in the climate emergency. But if we hold on to these institutions or these ways of working that we've had, you know, had for decades, um, it's not going to be there. And I think when you're talking about realities, accepting that reality, right, I think will 
you know, has the potential to push us to do other things. Um, it's, it's great to hear about um, Canada Council, you know, changing different ways around enabling the arts and building capacity in the arts in terms of the context of the climate emergency. It is, it'll be interesting to see how um, artists step up. Are you seeing artists step up in Australia, France, for example? Uh, I, I I think things are very similar here. You know, um, you know, we do we have seen funding to support um, artists in the COVID response or artworks, um, the creation of artworks in the climate response. We're seeing a lot of artists come and step up to the table, and I think that that's important. You know, if we think of things like a choir, you know, there have been some singers in the climate space for a really long time. And it's great to have new voices, but I think one of the things that's really important for artists who are engaging in in sort of in the climate context is to understand in many ways that they're situated within a field, right? And um, they, you know, climate change is so complex. You don't have to know all of the different details, but I think it's really important to collaborate to. Um, to move beyond sort of your individual response to a particular issue, but to gain, a, you know, a more complex, a broader understanding of what you're engaging with. Um, and I, I, and just one other no, note on that, I think um, the role of mentoring is really important right now and experimenting. And I think anyone who's been working in this space, um, you know, it, it would be great to bring others along into the conversation and make sure that everyone has their legs under the same table because we do need um, intergenerational knowledge. We need um, knowledge from, you know, all different intersections of um, our communities um, so that we do get that broad understanding because it took all the skills and knowledges um, to get us into this place, it's going to take all of the skills and knowledges to help get us out of it or to get us into, you know, into, you know, whatever sort of survival space that we might need to be in in the future. Well, it's, I think, relatively new for artists to be talking about survival space. Uh, some of the language you use, I think, will become more and more common, but it's really useful for artists to think about that, um, you know, that the, not only COVID, but the, private, the combination of COVID and the climate crisis have created new circumstances that are essentially uh, moving towards a survivalist type approach to, to living on earth, right? It's, it's come to that. You said, you know, Australia might be two generations away from being inha- uninhabitable or, or less habitable. Uh, people aren't, aren't there yet. A lot of people around me are, are I don't necessarily think they're in denial. I just think they haven't, they're not able to process the level of, of, of danger that we're in, that we put ourselves in. Philosophy professor Todd Dufresne. We're all being radicalized by reality. It's just that for some people, it takes a personal experience of fire, landslide, or hurricane to get their attention. I'm afraid it takes mass death and extinction. Whoever survives these experiences will have a renewed appreciation for nature for the external world, and for the necessity of collectivism in the face of mass extinction.
and that's why I tried to accept reality. But it's it's it sounds a little glib, accept reality. But I really tried to 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 understand you know IPCC reports and and others um, to let it sink in. You know, and and my I have a nineteen year old daughter and a twenty three year old son. We talk about this all the time about how their their generation are going to inherit what we've left, and we've left some good things. That, there's some great inventions, but they're all short term. The capital is 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 the resource space, you know, the whole disconnection from nature, all that that ideology, not ideology, it's it's what's happened. It's it's like our 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 heritage, what we're passing on, uh, I think has to be not more of the old, but a, a lot of maybe the very old, <laughs> if you think about indigenous knowledge, but also that, that combination of resources. So maybe we can talk a bit. I know you've listened to the, the Seth Klein um, episode because he's set up uh, in Vancouver with the David Suzuki Institute and others, uh, a thing called the Emergency Climate Unit. And his, uh, his idea is that the arts can play a much larger role in... Um, uh, somehow rallying people to uh, engage in an emergency mode with uh, the climate emergency or with the climate issue. Uh, what are your thoughts? What, what did you think when you heard him speak? And and uh, as a Canadian, you know, you, you can see this coming out of Western Canada where there's a very strong environmental movement. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Here would be my challenge to artists today and maybe to you too, Claude. Um, so... We're beginning to see artists across many artistic domains producing climate and climate emergency art, um, which is important and good to see. Um, what's striking to me is most of it, in, in the main, is, is dystopian about how horrific uh, the, the world will be if we fail to rise to this moment. And to a certain extent, that makes sense, right? Because it is scary and horrific. But here's what intrigued me about the artist, you know, what artists were producing in the war, is that in the main, it was not dystopian, even though the war was horrific. Um, it was rallying us. The tone was rallying us. Similar, you know, I, I found myself listening to this music as I was doing the research and I was thinking, wow, okay, World War II had a popular soundtrack and the anti-Vietnam War had a popular soundtrack. And when I was a kid in the peace and disarmament movement, there was a popular soundtrack. This doesn't have a popular soundtrack yet. Well, I, I thought there were some really valid points, um, you know, that he made, you know, around the fact that we don't have an anthem, you know, for the climate emergency and, you know, in questioning, you know, um, you know, why, why that's the case and, you know, making a case for, you know, a call to arms essentially um, of the arts, you know, stepping up to the plate. Um, I, I do get alarmed though when I do hear and it increasingly so around using war language in terms of the climate emergency. And um, we had a national summit here and uh, on the climate emergency last year be before the COVID lockdowns. Um, and that was the dominant language. And the thing is, is that um, that language is a command and control language. And it doesn't come from a place of empathy. It doesn't come from a, a place of togetherness or, um, and, you know, Claire in the film Refugium talks about um, in times of volatility, she refers to Plato, um, in times of volatility, you know, that um, mankind descends into tyranny you know that's 
war language, you know, um, I, I find that highly problematic. Um, I think when we can focus on social cohesion, social inclusion, and thinking about justice, um, I think we're we're appealing to a different to a different heart, you know, within within our humanity, and so um, and that you know that comes from you know a lot of this is First Nations knowledge, you know, in thinking about. Um, the eternal now, you know, that we're thinking about our, our, um, our ancestors past, present and emerging and thinking about their safety and their well-being and their prosperity. Um, so I, 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 see, I, I see what Seth is saying, you know, like he's giving an example of a time in which there was, you know, a great mobilization of the arts. Um, and I understand about this, this dystopian, you know, sort of trajectory that a lot of the arts are moving towards. Um, but World War II, we didn't have social media and we didn't have, you know, people constantly connected. And, we, and the world was, you know, vastly different um, and less connected now, um, less stressed, I would, I would think. You know, we're stressed by information and um our, our time is pulled in all different directions and we have this notion um, that, we, you know, I guess, I guess it's, I've been trying to unpack this lately around abundance, like this myth that we don't have abundance and yet, um, yeah, I, well, we have cultural abundance. <laughs> yeah, we, have, we have cultural abundance, but we also have this sort of thinking that we don't, that we don't have enough as well, you know, and so we're always sort of moving to trying to fill that gap with that, you know, that we're not good enough or, you know, all, all of those different things. And Well, that's a topic has come up in conversations, previous episodes about what is enough. And, and uh, certainly in, in certain cultures, you, you don't, you take no more than, than you need and you, you leave uh, and I think we have an ins insatiable appetite for newness and, and materials. And, and, and in fact, we don't need that much. We need a, a roof. We need, we need family. We need or, you know, social circles there for, to be happy. And now it's true that, that in Canada and in Australia, we're very privileged countries because we don't have war. We don't have uh, some of the challenges. But uh, I, I think that's something to, to explore is what is enough. And when do, when do we stop? And when do we just be happy with the things that are important to us and, and not have that uh, endless desire to go further? This is just reminding me of an undergraduate class that I had at the University of Alberta with Dr. Anne Whitelaw. And it was it was the birth of ad, or something to do with like the origins of advertising. And it went back to World War. I remember her talking about World War Two, World War One, uh, around the birth of advertising and around razors and soap you know that you know where people were told that they were unclean and therefore you had to buy you know i think it was pear soap or you have too much hair therefore you know these razors are you know what you need you know um we've you know for the last hundred years we've been trapped in all of these sorts of you know these stories and myths that we've been sold um and you know we've moved into very much a consumption 
consumptive mindset rather than a productive one. Um, and when we're in a productive mindset, we are we are in the creative mindset, right? And we are happy with enough, and we are constantly, you know, in problem solving mode and and so forth. But when we're in a consumptive mode, we're only looking at our deficit, you know. And yeah, I, I think there's something quite powerful in that. And um, there was a really great thing that the W uh, Worldwide World Wildlife Fund produced called Weathercocks and Signposts. And this was probably in 2008. Um, they did research on in America on the side of the house that people placed their solar panels. And they found that more people placed their side the solar panels on the street facing side of their house than the side of the house that actually would receive the most amount of sunlight. And um, what was interesting in that research was that um, it 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 brought into play sort of how social um, the social dynamic of decision making and peer pressure and so forth and to be seen as being you know eco minded. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there's a lot, a lot there in terms of fodder for us to think about in terms of how do we create sort of systemic change. And and Heredwin Jones in that same podcast with Raising the Bar, she did one on on raising a movement or causing a movement. And I, I recommend that one. You know, how do you create movements? And she, you know, she's done that in the arts in Australia um, for decades. Yeah, one of the other things that um, sort of struck me with Seth's um, podcast was around how Western-centric um, the perspective was. And um, I don't think that other cultures experienced a similar sort of um, feeling about about World War II. Um, and so I, I think it's important when we're thinking about the narratives around the climate emergency that we don't situate ourselves within Western narratives, that we um, think about you know, other cultures that have been experiencing climate impacts for decades, or think about First Nations perspectives um, where they have dealt with massive climate events in, um, in their histories, um, in their ancestors' histories. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, that's just something I think as a form of reference in terms of um, that language around calling upon those stories, that it, it is quite problematic in many ways. Well, I think what Seth is doing is using uh, the Second World War effort as a, a sort of an allegory of scale, right? That, that how, that's how large it needs to be. It obviously, is a different context. But I think people have to fill in the gaps, you know, and and mm -hmm. and contribute to to what what that effort needs to be and how it needs to be done. The just transition is an example, but I think the, yeah. all those ideas are are coming now. I think there's there's greater examples than that, though, Claude. I think Rachel Carson's um, fable in the beginning of Silent Spring um, is an is an excellent one. You know, it used a language that um, appealed to um, to women in households. Um, you know, stories that I mean, even Al Gore references his mother talking about um, Silent Spring at the dinner table. Um, you know, the, the freedom songs of the apartheid movement, you know, that were a way of disseminating information. Um, there's, gosh, there, there's quite a few of them. There's 
uh, I'm just trying to think of the one that started the um, Environmental Protection Agency in America. You know, that was a song um, that started, you know, that appealed to Americans to protect their rivers. Um, Dickens, you know, his stories, how they stopped, um, it got people to understand the, you know, the problems around the child labor, you know, or, you know, that it sparked the child labor movements. So I, th I think there are other examples that we can draw from that don't involve war, that really think about empathy and storytelling. And um, yes, that that don't evoke violence, you know, and, you know, even though I know these were rallying calls and so forth, they, um, they still are embedded in, in violence and a Western perspective. Well, it's good to, to debate these things. Thank you for mm -hmm. that, uh, those perspectives. Yeah, and what about the uh, you know representation and inclusion? Uh, you were just talking. Um, we were talking about the idea of of, of volunteer-driven uh, activities, but uh, how how do we make sure that all the voices are heard? And when we're doing this kind of work, yeah, when you're working, oftentimes in volunteer capacities, you um, are often attracting, um, you know, people who have free time you know, to, to contribute. And um, if you really want to be inclusive, you you do have to honour, um, honour, you know, the time of others. And when you're having volunteers, you know, you're att often attracting sort of more privileged classes who have, you know, more free time. Um, if you are remunerating and inviting people from, you know, different, uh, different cultural backgrounds, young people, um, people with different disabilities and so forth, remunerating them for their time is also saying we value your voice right and so I think that it's it's an important part of um, discussion around inclusion and equity um, that we need to be having to make sure that we are inviting and remunerating and valuing the voices of, of, of others you know the, the skills and knowledges that are often overlooked and undervalued I want to end our conversation because I, I we literally could go on a long time, but we'll yeah. we'll just want to end with um, what advice you have because I know artists, many artists and cultural workers listen to these kinds of podcasts, and I'm trying to help them those who are interested to to better understand you know what they can do in a practical way. Uh, what advice have you for artists who want to? become more engaged in climate issues or even survival issues? Are, what are some of the barriers or some of the things that you think they should should be doing to, to be able to move, move to literally transition the practice from maybe a more conventional practice to one that's more engaged with the climate emergency? Yeah. I, I mean, do a skills audit. I think that's a, that's a beginning, you know, to think about what are the skills and knowledges that you have that you can share um, I think um, engage, attend as much as you possibly can, you know, um, where, you know, there are opportunities to collaborate. Um, think about your own community, you know, especially right now, you know, more than anything, you know, think about how your skills and knowledges can help bolster 
um, community resilience in the climate emergency. One of the things that we know from our work in the Refuge Project is that you're more likely to be helped out in, 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 in a disaster context by your own neighbor than you are by emergency services. So understanding your capacity and knowing your neighbor and knowing you know what, what you can contribute um, is one way. And don't reinvent the wheel, right? You know, see how, you know, the, your work can amplify the work of others. Um, and then, yeah, and then, you know, if you focus your work on relationships, right, you're, that, that great project might be three years down the road, you know, and you might have a great team of collaborators to work on it, and you might make, you know, significant impact in your community. And then, you know, disseminate your outcomes from that. Um, but that would probably, yeah, you know, finding alternative audiences and social, you know, being more inclusive of the voices of others, I think, are the, the most important things because it is, it is that thing that I mentioned, you know, it's going to take all the skills and knowledge to help us find a way out of this mess. Dharma teacher, Catherine Ingram. Despite having caused so much destruction... It is important to consider the wide spectrum of possibilities that make up human life. Yes, on one end of that spectrum is greed, cruelty, and ignorance. On the other end is kindness, compassion, and wisdom. We are imbued with great creativity, brilliant communication, and extraordinary appreciation of and talent for music and other forms of art. There is no other known creature whose spectrum of consciousness is as wide and varied as our own. Is there anything else uh, you wanted to say before we wrap up? So one of the things that we asked in Refuge Project um, was, what do you know that you don't know that you know that we all might need to know in a disaster? Right? And that's, um, it's a question that can stump you, but then once you actually start to think about it, you know, um, you might recall, you know, something that your grandmother taught you, you know, and you might not remember the exact details of how to do it, but you, you know, you can start to unpack, you know, some of the, the elements of it. And, you know, it could be things like simple building skills. It might be remembering how your grandmother spoke to strangers in her community or the fact that, you know, how to, you know, it could be media training, it could be anything, but, you know, it's, it's starting to unpack all of those things that, you know, are that have potential you know that we need to hold on to in order to pass on to to others and share that knowledge and to get rid of paywalls and to make a public pedagogy of um of survival skills and ways of being in the world that aren't um aren't a currency or capitalistic capitalistic in any sort of way 
Well, that's a good advice, and it's a good question. I'll I'll put that in the in the uh, program notes and make it a a, a suggestion that I, I certainly will do it myself because it's it's a, I like that question just to to be able to to think about uh, what are the, some of the resources and some of the memories and some of the um, not and not that it the right now we're in an emergency right the the COVID crisis depending where you are in the world is is for some it's a disaster and and it, for everyone it's an emergency so already there uh, we could do some self reflection on what we've experienced what we've learned uh, how we can build on on that going forward and still you know create beautiful art still have great great experiences uh, that's one thing i we have, we won't get into so much but that it's to get out of a negative mindset right even though what's coming is is problematic like i said uh, how can we retain? Uh, I don't know if the word hope is appropriate, but some level of of positivity about the moment that we're in, you know, and and how we want to live our lives going forward, whenever it might end. Yeah, um, you know, we just besides you know the the ref, the refugee film, um, I had a project called Portage Shelter to Camp that happened the week before, and I was collaborating with four First Nations master weavers. And we were looking at um, vernacular architecture and indigenous forms of, of, of building. And we built six disaster shelters based on a Papua New Guinean stilt house, which, you know, is a great design for if you're living in flood, you know, floodplains. Um, there was a Somalian Akal, there's a Gunjamara stone house, a Métis wigwam and a lean-to. And we, in you know, we invited over 100 people to come co-build with us over four and a half days. And we had an idea what we wanted to build. We had all of the materials, but not one of us could actually build any of these structures. And, you know, this is our second iteration. We built boats in 2019 um, here. We had all of these materials and it was everyone who showed up to the workshop, you know, they learned um, a certain skill that was replicated and then scaled up. But, you know, it was one man who came in and showed us different types of lashing that ended up building one structure. And then it was somebody else that could, um, you know, make one of our binding techniques more efficient. And we, you know, when these projects went at the end of the days of the co-building, we were probably, you know, we way surpassed, you know, what we thought we would be building. And it was just because the people who showed up you know, part of it, so much of this is about showing up. Um, we, you know, we ended up building six life-size structures in the main hall at Arts House, you know, and it was, you know, the, the person who showed us, showed us the lashing, he ended up coming three days in a row because he was just saying, oh my God, this is great from, you know, I'm no longer sitting behind my computer. I'm actually, I'm meeting with people and I'm co-building in a way in which we're talking about other things by doing a rep repetitious action. And um, I'd like to be doing more work like that in the future because it just seems like um, it just reminds us why we're alive in many ways, you know, meeting new people and just seeing, you know, what, what we have to contribute. It's exciting. Well, on that note, I want to thank you, Jen Ray, for uh, speaking with me today and we'll keep in touch. Okay, that sounds great. Thank you so much.